Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. So today we're going to talk inflammatory bowel disease. And to have the discussion, I have the distinct pleasure to uh, have my friend and colleague, um, someone who spent a year in IBD Fellowship at Dartmouth, Dr. Jenna Kalyani-Pace. Jenna, thank you for being here, and thank you for helping me the past few years whenever I struggle with my IBD patients. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. I think so much has changed in the world of IBD in 2022, and I've been asked by a number of our partners for an update that thought that this might be a nice avenue to do it. Yeah, no, and for our listeners, Jenna has helped me even when I couldn't spell the new the new names of the IBD drugs. Jenna has spelled them out for me, like Rinvoke. So this is um, this is this is great. I think I will learn a lot, and I know our listeners both are um, our colleagues and um, other medical providers who are listening in today will get to at least some familiarity with these new new players. So 2020, 2022 was a big year for IBD therapeutics. Uh, the two newest players, and I'm going to just destroy their names, but that's okay. That were pro- approved by the FDA were Skyrizi, which is Resenkizinab, and Rinvoke, which is, I'm just going to spell it, U-P-A-D-A-C-I-T-I-N-I-B. And we're going to go with Rinvoke. So for for my sake, for the rest of this episode, we're going to go with the trade names because I will just stumble upon the real names the entire time. Uh, but before we get into where they may fit, I'd love for you to break down how you approach IBD therapy for both UC and Crohn's. And, and that's ambitious. I get that. There's a lot of nuances and there's a lot of patient-specific changes and preferences, but let's try anyway. Yeah, I think you're right. It definitely is a, is a big thing. And I'll do my best that I can here to summarize it for you. But whenever I'm seeing someone in the office, the first thing I always say is try to define like how sick is someone, like someone with Crohn's or UC, how sick are they? Um, and that's how I really guide what biologic or maybe small molecule that I might choose for them. Uh, most of us have a gestalt as to what that is, um, but let's look a little further into it. And I'm not going to do too, too much on this, but to really make the matter even complicated, those of us who consider ourselves, quote, IBDologists, will even break this down even further into something called disease activity versus disease severity. But we could have another podcast on that. So let's just keep it to what I want my colleagues as a general GI to know. And that's just really how do I define how sick someone is or how bad or severe their disease is with UC and Crohn's? Yeah. And I mean, I guess I'm general GI, so I could try to answer that question for you. For me, how sick someone is, you know, for UC Crohn's for both, you know, frequency of bowel movements, you know, quality of life changes, urgency, are they waking middle of night? Like nocturnal BMs is a big deal. Blood, mucus in the stool. Um, I think those are the symptoms. And then obviously you have the objective data. Typically for me, that's, you know, CRP, ESR, calprotectin. Um, but what, what's, what's your metrics? Yeah, I think that's really important. I think you hit on most of them. And I think one of the most important things to remember about our UC patients is that they're often young 
And because they're young, they're often healthy and they could really hide a very sick colon. And what the person's colon looks like endoscopically or even surgically, if they need to go to surgery, doesn't match often how the person looks on the outside. So we have to use a combination of factors like what you said, how many bowel movements do you actually have in 24 hours? And this is something that's really important for those of us seeing people in the hospital. You actually want them to write down anytime they pass anything out of their backside that's not just air coming out. But you want to know, you know, the number of bowel movements overnight while they're sleeping, the urgency, the percentage of bowel movements that have blood in it, and then factoring in lab things like CRP, keeping in mind that not all of our patients are going to mount an elevation of CRP, whether or not they're anemic, how low their albumin is. And, you know, some stool factors are things like fecal calprotectin. And this, for those of you who don't know, this is a marker of inflammation in the colon. And it's the higher the number, the more severe the inflammation looks. Um, and if you happen to have a fecal calprotectin around the time of a colonoscopy or flexible sigmoidoscopy, you can actually correlate the two so that in the future, if it, you know, your, your fecal calprotectin comes back at greater than 2000 or so, and you know, at the time that their scope looks like moderate to severe disease, you can correlate that in the future, which is really nice. And one of the big things with ulcerative colitis patients is they have a big fear of being incontinent because of how much inflammation is in their rectum. And that rectum is often really stubborn. So it's oftentimes the last thing to heal, but unfortunately the most symptomatic. So oftentimes patients will say, doc, I really can't trust a fart. I'm afraid I'm going to have a, you know, incontinent episode. And that's a question to really often ask patients with ulcerative colitis. Is that urgency and everything? I think that's very important. I mean, urgency and incontinence are, you're right. You know, that's what, even if you've got most of colon in remission, you know, mucosal healing, you've gotten good therapy, but if they still have that urgency or they still even have the occasional incontinence that completely changes their quality of life. Absolutely. And I think a important thing on someone that I actually saw today was that for her ulcerative colitis, endoscopically, it looked great, but because she had so much damage over time to her bowel, she had completely lost all of the normal folds in the colon. So she was having urgency episodes, not because of inflammation, but because of the loss of distensibility or scarring of the colon related to her, her ulcerative colitis. So it's an important distinction to make, make for these UC patients. So that's ulcerative colitis. Now, we're, now just for our listeners, we're talking about disease severity or how does a general GI or an IBDologist discuss severe severity of symptoms? And then we're going to talk about the new drugs. What about Crohn's disease? You know, what's severe, what metrics or symptoms do you use for Crohn's severity? Yeah. So where we focused a lot on how patients are feeling in ulcerative colitis, while that's still important with Crohn's disease, we use a lot of factors about how is the Crohn's disease behaving, which is slightly different than ulcerative colitis. So we ask, well, what about fistulizing disease? And what a fistula is, is when two parts of the bowel that aren't supposed to be connected have formed a bridge to connect themselves. We worry about whether or not there's abscesses around their anus and their perianal disease. Um, we worry about whether or not they have these narrowings and strictures, but also other factors of how young was the person when they were diagnosed? How many surgeries have they had? Um, but all of these factors, in addition to how they're doing is really important with Crohn's disease, which is slightly different than what we were talking about just a minute ago with UC. 
Yeah, I think a surgery point is important. You know, I always think when I think of Crohn's, I think more pain. And I think pain comes from what you mentioned, like the fibrostenotic complications of Crohn's, right? Because um, then you have more of a pain aspect, whereas with UC, it's a lot more of the urgency, maybe the frequency of bowel movements, where Crohn's, you get the pain side too. Of course, there's overlap there. Um, so, okay, so we've talked a little bit, and I've gotten your take on disease sickness or severity. Let's talk about these new drugs where do they fit or how do you think about them? Yeah, I think the most important thing to remember about them is that they're cousins of drugs that we already have on the market. So Skyrezi is really similar to Stelara. The dosing is slightly different and it has a different mechanism. So it's this on-body injector, which is different than there's the, you know, preloaded syringe that you give yourself a needle on. And Renvoke is similar to Zeljans. Both of these are uh, pills that are given. And it's important to note that Renvoke is approved only for ulcerative colitis and Skyrezi currently is only approved for Crohn's disease too. Um, so we just kind of remember that. Um, and while their mechanisms of action are really similar, meaning how they work in the body are really similar, they're not identical. And we'll talk about that differences in just a little bit, but the you know, the information, the science that I'm still waiting for is because these drugs are so similar to one another. If someone's been on Stellara, well, will they do okay on Skyrezi or vice versa with Renvoke and Zeljans? And I think we don't have that yet. You know, there's been some small, you know, numbers that have been thrown around at some conferences that I, I just, I'm not willing to hang my hat on any of the information that I've seen so far. That's interesting. I, I like the cousins analogy there. So you're right. So if, if Stellara's cousin is Skyrezi and you fail Stellara, will you respond to Skyrezi? And, you know, that's a very, very good question. And, I, you know, I, I'm hoping we'll get that information, like you said, in, in the next um, few months, maybe a few years. When do you start um, or when you start thinking about these new drugs and you, these new new cousins on the market, what sorts of things do you consider? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I always think about when I look at it is like, how well do they work? How efficacious are they? And then I start thinking about side effects. You know, what's the risk of infection? What is the risk of cancer? Um, and then pregnancy related things, you know, as, as one of the docs in our group who sees probably the vast majority of pregnant women with, uh, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis and, you know, all of our PDGI folks are, are referring over to me as soon as someone gets pregnant, you know, what does that information look like? Um, and the, the funny thing um, that you can kind of see if you really look at all of these studies overall is that the efficacy or how well they all work, whether it be a biologic or small molecule is about the same. And I'm going to quote one of our hepatology colleagues here who, if he listens to that, you know, he told, he told me this, he said, you know, IBD drugs are as effective as interferon was for the treatment of hep C. And I got to be honest, he, he's completely right. You know, at best they work 60% of the time, which is really tough. You know, I wish I had the Harvoni or Eclusa of hep C for, for IBD and we're just not there yet. I, I, I can guess exactly who that was, but you know, I won't, I won't say it on, on air here. Um, let, let's take a look at each of these drugs separately as we start to wrap up the episode today. I'll uh, start with Skyrezi. Yeah. So the way that Skyrezi works and here again, excuse me for, you know, all the weeds going into the weeds here, but so Skyrezi really works by blocking what's called the P19 subunit of IL-23. 
whereas Delara blocks the P40 subunit of IL-23 and IL-12. So really what that means is, you know, Skyrezi is more selective. So it only blocks IL-23 versus Stellara blocking both IL-12 and 23. And the way that it's dosed is you actually get three infusions through the IV at weeks zero, four, and eight. And then this on-body injector um, at week 12 and then every eight weeks. When you look at risk of infections, very similar to Stellara. So if we had to do a safety pyramid, this is a, one of our really safest drugs that we have. Um, and then they're much safer than things like steroids or methotrexate or any of the you know, anti-TNFs like Remicade or Humira that have been on the market for long-term. And, and while we're not 100% of the pregnancy risk, um, the short answer is we don't know it yet, but my hunch is, is that it's going to be very similar to Stellara. And I am using this even first line in my women of childbearing age. Oh, that's great information. And again, it's okay, Jenna, for, for this episode, the weeds are fine. I think, um, and I'm hoping to drag into more episodes in the future and we can do other episodes where we target more of a patient audience. But I think today's episode really is to learn as medical providers, what these new drugs are about. And I think that, you know, the mechanisms, especially because we hear so much about IL-23 and we hear more about Jack signaling, we're going to talk about in a second. We, we hear all these buzzwords for the past few years and disease state lectures that I, I think our audience will appreciate the weeds here. Um, yeah. So let's talk Renvoke I, and Jack signaling. Yeah. So um, exactly like you said, you know, like Renvoke works by blocking the Jack signaling pathway, but it's more selective than Zeljams. Um, and right now, here's the key that everyone needs to know. It's only approved for after anti-TNF failure. So meaning you have to fail Remicade or Humira to really go to this. Um, and those, you know, the dose of this is you start at 45 milligrams once daily for eight weeks, and then you can decrease to 30 or 15 thereafter. But I'm going to remind you, like, the people that I'm choosing this in are really my sick people. So I'm really nervous about going down to 15 milligram off the bat. So on everyone that I have on Zelgian, or excuse me, that I have on Renvoke right now, I'm only decreasing them to 30 milligrams. I'm not being gutsy enough to 15 milligrams because I worry about that. Um, and then an important factor to remember about these small molecules is that they don't have that risk of immunogenicity that anti-TNFs most notably do. So what, what do I mean by risk of immunogenicity? I mean the risk of developing antibodies against anti-TNF. Um, one of my mentors used to describe this, and I still use this today, is how do you describe antibody formation to patients? Well, think back about Pac-Man. So think about Remicade or Humira as the little dots and the, your body's immune system as Pac-Man eating it up. Um, and it seems, the analogy seems to do well with patients, but it makes them ineffective. Um, but the other thing we also need to really remember about small molecules that is advantageous and why I'm reaching out for this in my, as my second line um, after Remicade for my really sick UC patients is that um, patients with Remicade that are, sorry, patients with oninfliximab that are really sick, they often have a protein losing colopathy. Well, what does that mean? I essentially mean that they did a study where they measure infliximab in people's poop, literally meaning you're flushing it down the drain. Um, and we don't see that with small molecules. Um, the other thing to really remember is that 
Revoke is going to get a black wax warning like Zaljans is. And my prediction, it's only worth my own two cents, is that any jack, because of Zeljan's risk of um, you know, VTEs that were seen in Caucasian males who are middle-aged with RA, um, I think we're going to see that black box warning for every jack is my prediction. But then the biggest thing that you also need to remember about infection risk with Renvoke and Zeljans is shingles. So when you looked at the Zeljans data, the risk at one year was about 5% if you were on the higher dose. So I do recommend all of my patients getting Shingrix ahead of time. Um, and then also there's alterations in their lipids. So you know, in addition to their usual baseline labs that I get for everyone, I do add on a like a lipid panel for my patients with uh, that are on Renvoke, and then I'll recheck that about four to eight weeks later. I think Jenna, that service is probably a public serving service announcement. You know, some shingles vaccination, um, and really for all the medical providers listening, you know, whether your primary care or your gastroenterology. You have an IBD patient, you got to talk vaccinations with them. It's part of the housekeeping checklist. Um, for our listeners, Jenna, this was fantastic. I think, like I said earlier, these are very new agents. While they may be similar to what's on the market, there are nuances here. And I, I really think you did a great job of differentiating where the pathophysity medications are and also where they may fit into the overall algorithm and what's lacking and what we're still missing, what data we still need, what questions we still want answered. Um, for any patients listening, this was an episode that was really geared towards providers. So if you've listened to this, that's fine, but it's complicated. And I think it just stresses that you need to be speaking with not only your primary care provider, your gastroenterologist, but if you're thinking about these drugs, you know, maybe an IBDologist too, somebody like Dr. Koliani Pace, who who specializes specifically uh, in beyond the mild to moderate case of inflammatory bowel disease. Jenna, thank you so much. I'm hoping to bring you back in on more episodes because I have a ton of questions I'd like to ask you, even on a weekly basis. So I appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Look forward to future episodes.